This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. South Sudan is today among one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. Now, civil war there broke out in December, and things have gotten precipitously worse since then. There are now over one million people displaced, uh, and over the last several weeks, I've heard humanitarian organizations start to speak of famine. Now, famine is not a term that just means a lack of food. Rather, it's a specific designation invoked when certain indicators, many of them dealing with child mortality, are met. I cut up with Tariq Rebel, who is the Oxfam country director for South Sudan, to get a sense of just how dire the situation is on the ground. There have been peace talks that have been going on and off, more off than on, over the last several months that don't seem to be producing much in the way of a political settlement to this crisis. And in the meantime, the humanitarian situation is getting worse and worse. Now, the phone lines in South Sudan are not great, uh, even under the best of circumstances. So the audio quality of this episode is not probably what you're used to, but I think it's worth putting this out there anyway, just because this this is a... He offers a super important perspective on one of the world's most urgent crises. Remember, you can subscribe to Global Dispatches on iTunes and see every episode on UN Dispatch. And here it is, my conversation with Oxfam's Tariq Rebel from South Sudan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So uh, how close to famine do you think South Sudan is right now? I think uh, we need to be cautious in using that word. Uh, definitely the one thing we're missing is uh, adequate data on all the different pockets uh, around the country that are affected in different ways. What we are seeing is that there's a chronic food insecurity, uh, which in some pockets has reached levels that are very close to famine. Um, but overall, uh, we should be clear that the distinction here is not that this is due to climatic factors, such as it has been for many of the biggest uh, food insecurity situations or famines of the past years, but that this is uh, almost exclusively a man-made phenomenon. So basically, production has uh, reduced dramatically across the country in terms of agricultural products and or markets are not functioning properly. And all of this is just contributing to what is, if not a famine, a very dire food security situation? Absolutely. And what's so tragic is that if we compare it to kind of the big famines of the last year in in West Africa or in the Horn of Africa, this, this is entirely avoidable if we get a political revolution to the conflict, if fighting ceases, and if we 
well, first the production can return to normal and markets can function normally again. Um, we should not forget, of course, that even prior to December 2013, South Sudan is, uh, you know, considered one of the poorest countries across all indicators of development in the world. So it's not as if things were that great before the conflict, but now we're headed into a real catastrophe if things continue. So around uh, the spring during uh, planting season, I had heard a great number of warnings from UN officials and humanitarian officials that the ongoing fighting had disrupted the planting season. And now, uh, you know, the, the markets have been distorted because of that. Um, what is the international community doing to try to, on a you know, very basic humanitarian level, try to correct the markets and try to, you know, get food to areas that do not have it? So the principal activity in terms of remedying the food production is to distribute seeds and tools, which is happening um, across as many of the affected areas as possible. Unfortunately, there have been delays in getting seeds to farmers, so we haven't done this as quickly as we, as we would have hoped. But this is due to the insecurity. And then the second big factor is, of course, log- uh, logistical access. Um, we're in the rainy season. Many roads, if not all of them, are completely inaccessible. So most work has to be done by air. And uh, those assets are limited. So uh, transportation is a huge factor here. The second part in terms of food aid uh, is got the same restrictions, but even magnified because you need to transport a much larger volume, much larger tonnage uh, every day. So uh, a lot of areas are being reached exclusively by airdrops. Um, Oxfam is also working with the World Food Program uh, in some areas on this. And those airdrops are extremely difficult to do. Uh, again, because of the limited air capacity in country. Very expensive, but with the kind of estimating monthly assistance of $78 million a month, um, which is which is enormous, uh, an enormous figure to support uh, the people across the country that are uh, And that's, that's principally because of just the accessibility issues, because places are just roads are washed out and places need to be reached by air. Through the conflict, there were commercial barges operating on the river. Those operations have been disrupted or completely ceased uh, for long periods of time. Um, so then your exclusive mode of transportation becomes air transport. And, you know, that, that's extremely expensive. But also, the air trips are not working in the dry, in the wet season anyway. So you have to work through airdrops. You can't even land a plane, even if you, you know, you have a plane. So it's extremely complicated. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that this was entirely a man-made crisis. My sense is that, you know, there seems to be almost a stalemate on the ground between the forces of Salva Kiir, the president, and the renegade uh, rebel, uh, Riek Machar. Uh, is that pretty much what's, I mean, police talks that seem to be stalled. What's the current political situation like? Yeah, I think we're all very disappointed um, in terms of us watching this process very closely. Uh, obviously, on April 10th, the 60-day uh, window that had been set um, for a transitional government to be formed, a unity government to be formed, that would pass without such a government being formed. We find this to be, uh, to be really gross negligence uh, on the part of both sides in arriving to a conclusion. Um, 
an ongoing political resolution. None of the humanitarian um, problems are going to be addressed very quickly. We're just going to be bandaged, trying to uh, do life-saving activities as much as we can. But we can't address the chronic issues of development and of core humanitarian problems uh, in any meaningful way. Uh, also, we should add that you know the ethnic targeting is in huge uh, problems, uh, not just in terms of what it's doing to society, but again in terms of response. Um, last week, uh, five humanitarian workers were killed due to their ethnicity. Um, they were targeted for being newer. Um, Oxfam and other agencies had to uh, had to move out a lot of their staff. And a lot of our staff uh, are having to go through this over and over since December 2013. So it's, uh, it's basically just uh, it's a long, long resolution. Can you just tell the, the, the story of what happened with those uh, five humanitarian workers who were killed? Who were they? Where were they killed? You know, who were they working for? What was the circumstances? Sure. In the ban in 2012, uh, about 100 and more than 120,000 refugees uh, came from Sudan, uh, fleeing fighting there to uh, an area uh, called Maban in Upper Nile State. Uh, Oxfam and other agencies started responding and uh, working with uh, in camps, in refugee camps. Those camps have existed since then, and, and there's still about 127,000 people in them. Uh, last week, uh, local youth um, of the area um, received arms and uh, started going pretty much door-to-door and searching out people of the newer ethnicity. Um, five uh, humanitarian workers from different NGOs were found and killed, executed on the spot. Um, two are still missing. Others were able to successfully be, uh, be saved um, and evacuated out of there um, in very complicated operations, uh, of which uh, the UN, all, UN peacekeepers also assisted. There was staff being protected and getting them out. Um, so it's, it's an extremely uh, terrifying event for everyone. It's not the first targeting of humanitarian workers that been um, other NGOs in other places targeted uh, in since December 2013. We have uh, Oxfam has staff in Juba that are housed um, as do other NGOs that are housed in um, in armed camps because they cannot live freely in Juba anymore because they are newer. So this ethnic targeting is really gruesome, and, um, and yeah, it comes down to door to door people knocking on doors and, and checking their ethnicity. And there is a, for UN peacekeeping, a somewhat large mission in South Sudan, though uh, it doesn't seem to be big enough to uh, provide the security that's needed for South Sudan. Can you just talk about the role of UN peacekeeping in South Sudan today? What are peacekeepers doing and, and you know, what else might contribute to stability? Um. So UN peacekeepers, uh, we should say in December, they did save uh, the lives of many, many uh, newer uh, civilians, uh, including humanitarian work when the initial targeting broke out. Um, across the country, we have um, camps that are basically militarized, protected by UN peacekeepers because people cannot exit 
camps without being targeted um, and killed. Uh, so, so in that in that sense, we need to be very clear in emphasizing the life-saving role that peacekeepers have in saving many civilians um, targeted for the ethnicity. However, since then, I feel that a lot of attention is being devoted to these camps, um, these militarized camps, which house about 100,000 internally displaced persons in total. Now, in total, we have about a million people displaced. So this only represents, uh, in inverted commas, only 10% of the total displaced population. Now, who is protecting those other 90%? And because uh, the UN is pretty much focused on on these sites, we feel that it's very in terms of uh, in terms of patrols, in terms of uh, what we call area security, where a cordon is drawn and and uh, the UN would patrol, uh, trying to establish kind of a cordon of, of, of safety and security for all civilians uh, uh, not living in these armed camps. And we feel also that these armed camps are becoming a poor factor. That is, if you do need humanitarian assistance in these areas or if, or if you just uh, feel unsafe, your only option is to go to these camps because there is no other security option. So it's either nothing or these camps. So our lobbying of, uh, of the UN mission is that it needs to fulfill its mandate, it needs to expand its way on other operations, it needs to, uh, to, to have uh, you know, kind of a radius of operations that allows people to feel safe, even if they're not in our camp. Um, and we're also trying to increase forms of assistance um, in non-militarized situations so that we're not normalizing the fact that uh, assistance needs to be provided under these conditions, which are extremely difficult for everyone. Uh, and, and finally, the UN Security Council, including U.S. Ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, was in South Sudan uh, recently. What, uh, I guess, what were their meetings like? What effect can the Security Council or the international community at large have on the conflict in South Sudan? And what can the international community do to help bring the two sides to a more enduring peace agreement? So, I mean, maybe just completing from the last question would be that we need to reinforce the mandate of the UN force in country. The UN's force in country needs to become more aggressive in its engagement. Prior to December 2013, it was concerned about state building, but now we're in an open conflict, you know, in a war, civil war situation, essentially, which means that Amnesty can have to use aggressive means to protect civilians um, against against all parties of the conflict. So that would be one. The second one would be that um, as we are seeing both sides politically bidding in the negotiations, that there needs to be far more pressure exerted on all sides um, to come to an agreement. Um, as we've said, uh, there's been really no resolution to the humanitarian problems until we have a political uh, solution and we have peace in the country. So uh, we would call on, on uh, the international community, first of all, to put far more pressure on everyone at the table to find a solution, um, but also we would call on measures such as, for example, the implementation of the Arms Trade Treaty to be, um, to be followed through. So South Sudan has not signed or ratified the Arms Trade Treaty. We call on that to happen as soon as possible. And then for all countries, uh, neighboring, but also other countries have relations with South Sudan 
to implement that forest uh, because as long as we have weapons flowing into South Sudan to both, uh, well, not the, to all parties, uh, armed forces in the country, uh, we are not going to have an end to this conflict. So I think there's a number of things that can still be done. Um, we obviously know everyone's looking towards Gaza, towards Iraq, um, to places like that at these times, and that's understandable. But we should not forget that this, in terms of its sheer um, scale, uh, this is easily this is conflict right now and um, with Syria. And so we need to also uh, start talking about it in those terms. People know what's going on in Syria, but very few people are even aware of the extent of the, of the devastation that's being caused in South Sudan for the last eight months. Uh, well, Tariq, thank you so much for your time. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Obviously, this is a very important situation to monitor, so we will return to the situation in South Sudan in future episodes for sure. Uh, As of now, we'll see you later. Bye.